Okay. Okay, so now it's recording. Uh, so hello, everyone, uh, for this episode of the Realistic Optimist. Today, I have the honor of being joined by Adnan, uh, who is the founder of MSize and a pioneer in the social entrepreneurship world in Morocco and the wider region. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, uh, Adnan, tell us a bit more about yourself, about your endeavors, uh, about your quests. Okay. I, I like the quests and, uh, and I like the concept of journeys. And I've, I've been interested for the last, I'd say, 10 plus years on how to have people solve their own problems. Uh, it sounds odd to many people, but at the core, can, when somebody understands that they have the tool and powers to identify their own needs and go solve them, that's basically my pitch. And, and, and a few last years, it kind of grew where the thing that interests me the most actually is solving complex problems. It's not just things that are, uh, I would say, simple, but and, and the, if we use the terms used in social entrepreneurship, it's what we call systemic problems and are things that, and with COVID, now the whole world understood that when we talk about system, uh, like for example, healthcare is not just doctors and hospitals. You at home, you have the system. So I've been interested in these things and I've had the chance to work in many countries, places, regions, whatever. And we're all the same. We all want to live better and we need to connect more and create more things. And I'm happy to be here. Okay, thank you so much. That's a good quest. Um, so I wanna talk about uh, MSize, the organization that you've co-founded. And I think one of the easiest ways to do it is to kind of go through the acronym because I saw that each letter has a specific uh, meaning and, and kind of represents a sector that you're working in. Uh, so if you could kind of go behind, uh, I mean, the inspiration for MSize, uh, what it's doing, and then kind of go through the acronym just to give us a better idea. So, well, well the, thing, the interesting thing about MSize is that uh, the inception was in the, the beginning of the, of the late uh, 2010s, just about the time when the, the, the movement of change started in the region. And I personally was interested in how we can create this gap, bridge the gap between the individuals, the private sector, the government, and how can really uh, we design solutions. So the inception of the organization came from the idea of how to find solutions uh, basically, and like a kind of a solution produ production machine, uh, but solution uh, that are at the same time innovative, which means that can fit the needs of the time we are right now and the societies and that are also entrepreneurial, which means that they create a value uh, and that can solve uh, some something at a scale. Um, the third part of the mission is to every social challenge. And here I can give you like a lot of, I would say, uh, anecdotes that happened over the years where a lot of people at the beginning were telling me, are you crazy? You want to solve all the, every problem? I was like, one reason why we are so screwed is because we think in silos. And I use the big we. Uh, uh, and uh, we're coming from a francophone background. This is something that you could really relate to. So understanding the concept of systems was part of the inceptional. If we want to improve healthcare, we need to talk about the whole healthcare system, which includes those who are in school, those who are sick, not sick, the patients, the doctors, and so on. And the last part of the mission is in Morocco, which interestingly enough, because the beginning of MCS was like Moroccan Center for Innovation and Social Enterprise. But for the last three, four years, we've started doing more work um, and more things outside our country. And we're probably dropping the Morocco part uh, in the next couple of months as we're opening operations in France, in 
Madagascar, and other places. Um, so one way the team decided to use on the acronym, kind of a brand, like if we want to create a system change, we need to work on communities, we need to work on education, we need to work on markets, we need to work on, uh, on spaces. And that's how we kind of created a system. And if you go to our website, anybody who, who watches us, you can see it clearly on how we call ourselves a system of systems, where basically uh, it's taking individuals, organizations from inspiration to impact. And this goes through uh, the education systems, it goes through uh, capacity building, funding, all the kind of you know buzzwords that you can hear here and then. And it's still, you know, life. You, you, you go and change and grow and, and see what works and what doesn't work and then you just don't stop. Okay, yeah, perfect. And so I had a question out of the, I'm sorry, so five kind of key sectors that you're working in, um, which are all elements of the entrepreneurial ecosystem, which one have you found to be the most important and which one has MSize really focused on uh, maybe something that you didn't think was that important in an ecosystem that is really proving to be to be fundamental. Well, it's the question is tricky because it's a chicken egg thing, uh, and it's very difficult to say. Okay, that's more important. But I would say the the mindset part is the most important, and growing day by day. Uh, and I've had a chance to become an, an Ashoka fellow like. The, a couple of years ago uh, for a program that we designed inside schools. Because uh, if you have, and if you empower parents, teachers, students, uh, when young people are 14, 13, to design and think about their own lives, you are definitely shaping uh, uh, the future. But the other thing that happens is a lot of people focus on young people. But if you really want to create system change, you have to focus on young people, but also focus on the teachers and on the parents and on the school directors, you know, and all the administrators and so on. Why? Because, you know, young people are fun, they, they engage, but they leave. So you need to create systems that, you know, where you operate with those that stay. So when you work with a teacher, you are assured that you're going to impact hundreds and thousands of people that go in there. And, 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 and with time, this so at the beginning it was kind of a, you know just a, a a hinge that we want to do this but now it's becoming stronger 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 that this whole idea of the mindset the problem solving mindset whether you're talking about jerusalem palestine you're talking about in i don't know in in nice or in in in, in, in lagos or ghana or whatever that mindset is what's creating the difference uh the other part is the government side like many social entrepreneurs uh, have and do struggle to grow. Uh, and the struggle to grow is part of the DNA. And then of course you would have countries and regions where it's easier uh, and places where it takes more guts and more patience and more time. So the role of government is very important to be part of this system, uh, to create uh, sometimes safe space or not, it really depends on where you are, and create and provide resources so that people can, can continue working. And with COVID-19, uh, 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 the world has seen a systemic failures of different governance systems. So it's not about is this uh, um, uh, participative, democratic, non-democratic, whatever, because at the end, how are you going to fix the damn problem? 
So the link of inspiration, education, and working with actors, including governments, uh, and here governments at all levels, local, regional, national, international, so on. If we want to create something that is definitely going to improve and empower everyone, we cannot work alone. We have to uh, find ways, and sometimes very hard, uh, to do things together, empower more people to become themselves the agents, not just of change, but the agents of this type of mindset that produces innovations, produces solutions. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you touched upon something that was actually a segue into my next question. Uh, but one theme that comes, that repeatedly comes uh, forward in your interviews and in and, and, and size and stuff is kind of the slogan of using social entrepreneurship to solve social problems. And what's interesting, and as you said, coming from a Francophone background where the rule of the state is, is very heavy, uh, intuitively you would think, oh, no, social problems are for governments because intuitively they don't, uh, they don't inspire profits, so they can't be the jobs of, of companies. So how do you think social entrepreneurship can solve social problems and what role should it play alongside a government? So should it, are there issues where governments should give up and just, as you said, uh, empower those social entrepreneurships, uh, social entrepreneurs that are bringing solutions, uh, or should governments take in social entrepreneurs as advisors? Uh, so I guess my question is, um, what's the type of collaboration that has to happen between governments and social entrepreneurs to, as you said, tackle those social problems? Well, first of all, congratulations for this question. Because like I've been around for quite some time and a lot of people still cannot comprehend the complexity and the way how you put it. Uh, so let's break it down. So the first part of the question is social entrepreneurs solving social problems. Well, actually that's the mandate of a social entrepreneur. If there are no social problems, you can't be a social entrepreneur because you know, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. The other part is the frameworks of thinking. And this is where, where you were talking about the idea of social, like in French, social, la charité, where it's like, it's not my job, but it's the government's job to take care of the public welfare or the public good. And this is again, it's again in terms of frameworks. Uh, I've worked in tons and tons of countries where these frameworks are so different. I can give you like an example of Algeria. So in Algeria, it's almost impossible to create a nonprofit because the regulation is very tough, but it's easy to create a business. So I've seen a lot of people actually creating companies that solve social problems without going into this, you know, this, this philosophical discussion. Is it, you know, the role of government and whatever, because you know the state of the art is like this, and other places is is, is opposite. But again, what people should understand is that this is not something. It's not a mathematical problem. It's not something that has a single definition. The words are different in many environments. The translations do not equal definitions in many environments, and models are not the same. Like. You can have social enterprises that are nonprofits. You can have social enterprises that are large scale holdings and private companies. You can have social enterprises that are dividend free. You can have social enterprises that are pro-capitalistic. So, and for me, that's actually the beauty of this sector. So you don't get bored. You cannot get bored. 
and, and where governments plays a role and should play a role is the whole idea of understanding the hybrid models. And, and, and governments that are, that where the laws are, I would say, inspired from Napoleon, Napoleonian, where the rule is, if it's not there, it's not permitted. But if you go to common law, which is the English law, and it's different where what's not written, it's great. So what happens in many countries for social entrepreneurs uh, that basically do not identify as social entrepreneurs to just deal with the flow. You, you find ways uh, 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 to generate revenue, to create impact, to, to sign contract. So even for us, like we have two, com two organizations, we have a for-profit company and an not-for-profit company. Uh, and not the, the for-profit is owned by the nonprofit and we use it uh, like in a system depending on who's in front of us. And many, many people do this. Uh, they have uh, different arms, different branches because legal structures are different from a country to another. And also partners, like you have a lot of, for example, a lot of uh, foundations or partners, they would say for-profit companies are not eligible. So you need to be a nonprofit and the other way around. So bottom line is one should understand that the agility that you need to have is should be very open and wide, but the common thing is solving problems. That's the common threat. So what is the, the purpose? Is the purpose solving a problem or is the purpose like creating profit or, or revenue? And an, an example that some people would say, okay, so McDonald's is a social enterprise because it creates jobs. And you, you can hear this in many, many places. I would say, if they have two priorities, which would come for number one? Is it the, the sales or is it the jobs? And, and so that's where the, the philosophy is, where the framework should, should come. So what type of problems are we solving? And the last thing in here is the role of governments. I believe that social innovation here is a mindset that you can apply to anything, anything, any sector. It's, it's sector agnostic. So it's not just about jobs. It's not just about inclusion. It's not just about the elderly or special needs. It's basically, it's like glasses where that you can put and see it. And I've been personally engaged with various programs uh, from uh, uh, political unrest to uh, company mobilization to like a lot of things. And the prism that I personally use is the social innovation prism. How can we solve that problem while generating impact and getting people there? Uh, but it's a long way ahead. Not everybody understands it. So it takes a lot of time and a lot of efforts and a lot of uh, conversion to these principles. That's why we need more people like you and others that you know, spotlighting and, and finding ways and creating these type of connections that are in due course is going to create something that would help us all. You know what I find really interesting and refreshing is your loose definition of social entrepreneurship in the sense that you say it's not necessarily about legal structure or about the way you operate, but it's about priorities. And for talking to many social entrepreneurs and attempting to be one myself, um, I think, as you said, there's, there's always this paradox of, oh, we're not an NGO, but we're not a for-profit. And so we kind of box ourselves into this conceived business model or conceived uh, way of functioning that isn't, as you said, set in stone. It's, it's really about priorities. Uh, my next question was about um, why is there a surge in social entrepreneurship at the moment? Is our generation just more aware 
uh, our mentalities changing around what a business is supposed to be? And, and what explains, as you said, the, I mean, in, in 30, 40 years ago, social problems were the problem of government and, and period. Uh, so, so why, why is this mentality changing? But it's 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 still the case, like in many many places. So my personal journey, like like 15 years ago, uh, uh, so I was I was I was when I was probably your age uh, in my undergrad, uh, like doing some type of NGO work in student associations and so on. And I liked it. I didn't know what it was, and I just felt that oh, it felt good to not just you know donate, but work with people to create something that works every day. And with time. Uh, I came to understand that this actually had a con had a name, the social part, the social entrepreneurship part, and, and around that time the the late last financial crisis happened, which was two thousand eight and nine, and I was in France at that time, and and in France I was working at a company, Danone, uh, where at that time they were well ahead on putting this whole idea of purpose first. Uh, uh, because uh, you, talk, you, you call it priorities and I call it purpose. Uh, so the whole idea of purpose-driven. So, so why do we see this more, more and more these days? Because like this generation seeks more meaning because for those of us who are fortunate enough to have, to speak languages, to be on Zoom, to have internet, to travel and so on, you know, like we're not starving, right? We can do Worst thing that we can have is be short of money like for a couple of days, but then that's it. So, so a lot of people in our generation, like the idea of doing something beyond than yourself becomes. And I can tell you that you would not imagine the numbers of people who reach out to me every day from all walks of life, all over the world. This whole idea of how can I do something? How can I make my life meaningful? How can I do more? Like everything, everything. So, so the acceleration comes with technology. Now, when you have access, when you go and travel. On the other hand, when you were saying that like 30 years ago, it was just the role of government to solve problems. Uh, and I told you it's actually even now because it depends on where you are. Because in some cultures, even if you have technology and so on, there is you know, very strict understandings of laws and regulations you know what who should do what and who should be uh, who should be there that's why the role of evangelizing and advocating with young people and here i'm not saying that young people are the solution are the solutions everybody is a solution maker but younger generations have more ease to comprehend the challenges ahead and especially those who are lucky enough to understand that we don't have a planet b it's either we fix this ones because Elon Musk and the others have not found ways to send us to Mars and those planets. So, so far we are stuck here. So uh, uh, the movement that exists with you people like, like you, and I really congratulate you with what you're doing is, you know, finding a place, what should I do in this? But the challenge that happens in many countries and cultures is the intergenerational challenge how to get all the generations, which usually is the decision makers and stakeholders to understand why are these crazy hippies, you know, like a, the, 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 the 70s, why these new seven hippies are doing things, they're not following the regular jobs, they, the, being the doctors and the engineers and so on. So uh, in a nutshell, yes, there is a change in priorities of individuals. And I can even tell you that uh, if you remove economic conditions, 
every young person would prioritize purpose over, uh, uh, I would say like a kind of a, a simple um, physical uh, type of, of, of life, even though it appears they would be, they would have the fancy life. So it, and it shows you that they're shifting. And now with COVID, it is an acceleration for consciousness. I'm not talking about individual, I'm not talking about governments, but consciousness from people that, okay, out of the sudden, I'm stuck at home. It's not because of me. Maybe it's me, but it's not me. But at the end, I'm here. So a lot of people now are understanding that they have a bigger stake in what they do. So generation thing, context, awareness, and which gives us a, a larger responsibility towards those who don't have access. Because we were talking before about the digital divide, now we have the Zoom divide. And it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So we need to make 100 times more efforts than before to be able to uh, live together because as COVID showed, it's either together or no one. Yeah, that's true. And I, I mean, I can see that change of, of mentality and purpose in our generation. And as I said, as we talked before in the World Bank Summit was just the epitome of, of everything we talked about. Um, I'd like to touch upon a point that you made in one of your interviews about brain drain, uh, so la fuite des cerveaux in French. Um, and so, as you said, this new generation is most likely, or I mean, for the lucky ones, have kind of the, the survival uh, needs taken care of. Um, and as you said, most people today, most young people are in search of meaning more than, more than just financial uh, uh, excess. And, and so one of the, one of the, I mean, the main reason for, for brain drain and for leaving your own country was, or is still a search for more money. And so I think what I'm trying to touch upon is how can the development of a social entrepreneurship ecosystem, which provides meaning and, you know, decent, uh, uh decent revenue and kind of basic goods, how can the development of a uh, social entrepreneurship uh, uh, ecosystem uh, slow down uh, brain drain in, in all countries? Well, well there, there's something interesting uh, you're mentioning. Uh, uh, you talked about brain drain for economic reasons. There's also another type of brain, I would say, movements where people who are moving, seeking for meaning and seeking for purpose. And I know tons of people who are moving from places to places because they want to achieve meaning. And because, so th this, is, this is something like in the, I don't know, in the previous century, it was, it was kind of driven by religious, I would say backgrounds, to go there to provide and care for the poor and for more from a charity perspective. Now it kind of shifted to purpose. I have a lot of people like who don't identify with the country, but they would identify with humanity or community or the ecosystem or biodiversity, like what you were telling me that you're doing a project in, in Jordan and Palestine, things like this. So, so the challenge that we have these days is, uh, and here we're talking about an elite, not an elite in terms of financial resources, but an elite in terms of numbers of, of view of the world. I personally feel that I have responsibility to the whole planet because as COVID showed, if anything happens, 
the other side of the planet, I am definitely going to be affected. So this is something that a lot of people now are trying to and starting to understand. Now what happens is, you know, some environments are, are I would say, tougher than the others. Uh, so when you don't have the, the, I don't like to use the word ecosystem a lot because it's like, it's becoming more, it loses its, 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 uh, its finesse. But you need to have a support system that enables you to uh, thrive and grow. Uh, so what happens in many places, and, and, and our organization is, in, is, is, is an interesting case because we receive a lot of people from all over the world coming to want to work with us and spend time with us because either they want to learn what we do uh, or they want to contribute or they want to replicate that into other places. So now we're, we're, we've just launched a program in Madagascar lately with one person who was a student, of, a student of mine. She came to see what we do for a couple of times and she loved it. She said, I'm moving to this other country, she's French. So she's moving to a third country. And she was like, I wanna do the same. So, so, so this type of meaningful brain movement is what is going to create new types of value because as you know, ideas don't need visas. Ideas don't have passports. So you can really, you know, like a, be like a butterfly and go and bolognese. So the, which means the challenge for us is higher to provide equal access opportunities for those who have to leave for uh, financial reasons or for security reasons or freedom because the role of freedom is there. So what is the role of the ecosystem to be there is to create that safe space for smart people like you and others uh, who feel that they have somewhere to go to, like a, you know, like a kind of a, a fatherly or motherly, I would say, touch. That uh, even though it's not, it's fine if it doesn't go well, but you will do it. Uh, so that's the kind of the word for ecosystem that cares, uh, and that cares, but not just caring, but is on in an empathy perspective that knows that life is hard but together we can go through. That's the role of the efficient ecosystem that makes individuals uh, stick, create, and it's a common responsibility in wherever we are to create our own ecosystem, however and whatever the situations might be and harder what they need, maybe. So this is a perfect, uh, you're kind of ushering my next question. And so the goal of the realistic optimist is to observe how cities and countries solved or you know, attempted to solve their problems um, and as you said, how those can be replicated. I'm a big believer in, you know, inspire yourselves from stuff that works. Don't try to reinvent uh, the wheel, as we say in French. Um, and so from your work in the social entrepreneurship world and the social impact world, what countries or cities are top notch uh, or are taking the best, uh, you know, the best steps? And what are those steps? Well, well, there is a report that co comes out every two years. Um, uh, it's called The Best Place to Be a Social Entrepreneur. I don't know if you've seen it, by the Thomson Reuters Foundations. So Canada is and has been for the last 10 years uh, one of the best places that supports and makes social entrepreneurs thrive. Uh, 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 South Korea is also a booming place. Singapore in its, it's a booming place. And, and France uh, in this ranking, uh, I think it was before 10, now it's becoming the fifth uh, country. Germany is an ideal place for social entrepreneurs because the, the, the mindsets, the resources, the connections are there. But again, 
like these type of, of, of rankings and places are a bit biased because you have many variables. Uh, 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 like for also having worked in Iraq, I can tell that Iraq is an outstanding place for social entrepreneurs because everything is being in reconstruction and being built. Sudan is a wonderful place for that. So the framework for social entrepreneurs is is you know this different mindset it's not just yes you need to have like the basic requirements and technology and safety and so on but also if you don't have it that's an opportunity to create it and that's why i have a lot of, and i've done a project the past few months in, in jerusalem palestine within with the incubator there and i've had a chance to uh, to talk uh, with tons of uh, people from Jerusalem, whether you know, young people, entrepreneurs, uh, uh, international organizations, one. Uh, the tone of what they're saying is very sad because of how the situation is tragic, but at the same time, it's very optimist in the sense that it is what it is, but we gotta do what you gotta do. We need to create things. So that's what, what drives the most social entrepreneurs. And I would think that uh, uh, the more you're put into challenges, the, the better prepared you are to overcome. It's like you, you are in a training ring. If it's easy, you'll die easily. But if you're being prepared, you can move up stages and to places. And the other thing is connections. And I think what's beautiful for me, one of the most beautiful things about social entrepreneurship, it's, because it's a global family. Like people connect. Just today, before you, I had a call like five minutes ago, uh, with another community from 13 plus countries. Uh, an hour before that, I had a call with 50 plus people from different people. It's all about the same thing. So, so even though people are busy, they would not tell you, I can't do that. Uh, it's, you know, how much time are you paying me for this? Because the drive for the common good is greater. And this is something that is, like from what I've seen, is unique. To this, to this environment, and that is cherished, that should be cherished and should be available in languages. Because sadly, most of it is in English. So we have a common responsibility to translate and to make it accessible to people. Uh, and here, when I'm saying translate, I'm not just talking about language, but translating ideas and ways of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think what I really like is how you said the social entrepreneurship is kind of a big family. And uh, we talk to entrepreneurs in, in Iraqi Kurdistan, which is a booming place for entrepreneurship. Uh, they I were was there. I was there last year. Really? And in, I was I did training. I, so last year I was working with the, the Dutch government. So I did a training for nine incubators in Iraq. Uh, uh, and I could people from Mosul and, and, Mos and, uh, and, and Erbil and yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the, so, the, you know what I really think is important and kind of contributes to this big family is the idea that there is no, you know, it's not a cutthroat competition. And I think this goes against our, you know, the kind of capitalistic ideas that we've been ingrained in is that in order for innovation to come forward, you need to be in competition with others. You need to want to win. And I think that's what is really changing in the minds of people is that you don't have to win. You have to do what's good on your part by inspiring yourselves from others but you don't need to crush down the other opponents for you to succeed. And uh, when you were talking about the, the, you know, the, the toughest conditions make the toughest entrepreneurs, we've seen that firsthand. We've talked to Gaza Sky Geeks, an incredible organization, a really great organization. Um, 
what I wanted to touch upon now is kind of a de uh, it's details. So let's say I'm a country or I'm, I'm the head of a country uh, with a newly created Minister of Entrepreneurship, which is the case in Palestine, by the way. Uh, what, what are the you know, concrete steps that I have to go through in order to, to kickstart, uh, not that ecosystem, but to kickstart those systems that I want to put in place? Mm. So, so like 100%, like 100%. And I think that's that this is something that should be exposed even more uh, to show that this so collaboration, like we've seen it this year with COVID, how governments and countries were fighting for equipment and things. I was crazy. I was crazy. So we need not like an, as Bill Drayton from Ashoka says, we need system and framework change. And that's what uh, um, that's what uh, social entrepreneurs and social innovation movement comes in in all sectors because you can be a social entrepreneur in governments, you can be in NGOs, you can be in the military everywhere. It's definitely how you see and, and, and arrange things. So I want to talk about something: uh, the entrepreneur mind, which you talked about in your TED talk uh, in Bangalore, and kind of the idea that. Uh, everyone should develop an entrepreneur mind, not just to become an entrepreneur, but to have that mentality of go get it, kind of don't wait for things to come upon you. Uh, so could you get into more of those details about what you think is an entrepreneur mind, how to acquire it, and, and what benefit does it provide you? Well, it, it, it's linked to what we were just talking about like a, right, a few minutes ago, about that you can become a social entrepreneur anywhere. And this mindset is actually the problem-solving mindset, you know, on uh, how can I, in wherever context I am, I'm able to problem-solve. Uh, how can I uh, not just wait? Uh, uh, so in, in French, we call it la sistana. Uh, and it's something that is very difficult to translate in English because it's not in the framework, you see? So how can you be a go-getter? How can you become definitely the, the agent of your change? And this is the idea, and for me, how I really define entrepreneurs is the concept of value creation. The value creation for plus one, which means not just for yourself, but for widening. So this mindset, and I definitely believe that everybody can become an entrepreneur. Uh, my mom is an entrepreneur, even though she doesn't understand it herself. Because if she sees a problem, she goes and fixes it and goes all the way around to make it happen. So the challenge that we have in many countries is how to make these ideas mainstream. Like you see all these programs about job creation and employability and so on. But for God's sake, you can't do job creation and employability with the mindset of somebody waiting aid. It's definitely not going to work. Or even worse, training people to become hairdressers in an environment where you have a million hairdressers. What's that about? So that's where the mindset comes in. And this whole idea of the individual positioning on to become and create and leverage your status. Uh, and this is, it takes time. Uh, it takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of education systems to be transformed, uh, but it's possible. So we need to, I don't know, like create a conspiracy for good. More people to join in forces and to handle more and leverage more. That's a good. That's a good way of seeing it. Yeah. Um, one of the last things, and this is the last thing I want to get into, because uh, we've almost. Oh, we're not an hour, but this this will keep us occupied. Uh, I think it's a very important question, especially for my generation at the moment. 
and it's the idea of experience over education. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, what does that mean? Why, you know, our previous generations, I was talking to my uncle or, or, my, or my dad, who have very impressive, you know, educational resumes, uh, and who might think that that's kind of the path. And why would you even think of not doing that? You know, like diploma equals, equals safety. Um, what's your argument for the experience over education? And what form should it take? Oh, God, this is like, you know, so I've, in a, in a, I, I used to run one of the biggest programs in universities in North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, I've, I've been through almost tons of universities and schools and, and like all of that, all of that. Uh, and I think the, the, the tragedy that we have, and especially education systems and parents and so on, is that there is a thinking that you model yourself based on the past not based on the future. That's why when people say, oh, you should go and do this career because I did it, it worked for me. Or because your cousin or your friend and so on. And, and also what happens because we are, and I use the, the global we, indoctrinated with this whole idea of, of degree versus uh, experience is COVID. You have now tons and tons of people who are asking themselves the question, why on earth do I pay tens of thousands of dollars to have Zoom classes for information that I can have online for free? For free. And I was just talking to a, 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 a Brian who, who used to intern with us um, uh, last year and then he had to leave with COVID. Uh, uh, so he's back to school in, in Harvard this year. But he was, and he was like telling me, I'm thinking of dropping out of school again because there's no point of spending my time over Zoom. Uh, uh, so I told him, well, we're having a project this year, come and work with us. Uh, uh, and then he was like, I'm down for it. Why? Because this experience, hands-on experience, of course, when you complete it with research and data and things, you can create a better profile. And the other thing is that, especially in entrepreneurship, it's very hard to learn this in school because the way schools are designed are not designed for this. Most schools are designed for, uh, and here I'm excluding research because research is something else. When you're talking about like school from a classical sense. So if you've been in a system where you know that from age six or seven, you have to be resilient and resourceful. You have to find your own ways. You have to create and develop solutions. You know that I don't need to wait until I'm 18 to be a doctor and I have no idea, I just saw it on TV screen and I have no understanding of what happens. So what type of experience did I get? That's why the concept of internship is very important. So I would really recommend experience first because experience is what's going to follow you into what you want to study. And if we want to go deep, deep dive in. And if you're younger, like accumulating a lot of data and information sadly is not going to serve you. And this is, of course, a discourse that is not appreciated a lot with traditional stakeholders. Because like, uh, uh, you have to study to get this degree because and X, Y, Z. And, and I'm speaking from experience. I've been able personally to, uh, to, be, to do a lot of things. And I've never been asked a single time for a degree, except if it's you know, applying for a contract where sometimes you need a reference. And a lot of times, like in a lot, and I was in a conference, uh, an event last week with somebody and he was like, he was the same age as myself. And he was like, 
how were you able to do all of that? And I was like, I don't know. I just do stuff. So, so experience, experience, never seek opportunity to do stuff. And I'll add to it being useful because when you do an experience and you're useful, you learn more about yourself than in other experience. And then you can create and develop your superpower. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I think that makes sense, and especially in the social entrepreneurship world. I mean, no one seems to really care about your diploma. It's more about what are you doing, what solution are you solving. Um, but yeah, I I I feel the the frustration of the the Zoom tuition <laughs> for sure. Um, well, Adnan, thank you so much. It was a great talk. Uh, I hope I uh, I intellectually challenged you with with some of the questions. Um, and yeah, uh, this will be uploaded very soon and I'll send, I'll send it to you, uh, for sure. And talk question. What should we do together? Because I love that conversation and I want to do stuff with you. So let's, let's schedule a meeting to plan stuff. Yes, let's, let's, I'm very down and I have a, a social entrepreneurship venture that I think you'll be very interested in, especially uh, because it really connects diasporas to entrepreneurs. And I know the Moroccan diaspora is everywhere and, and very successful. Tim. I'm interested in anything that is useful. Okay, this is useful. I promise yeah. you. And you know, just one last thing, and this kind of proves my point about, I mean, it's kind of market validation for our idea. But when you said that people are now in search of purpose, yeah. um, I think that really comes back and we can see it in the research we're doing about, about diasporas. Mm -hmm. um, there's this sense of uh, survivor guilt or kind yeah. of diaspora need to give back. And I mean, you yourself, I, I stalked your LinkedIn and I'm gonna be honest, you studied some part in France. I'm, I'm a diaspora myself. <laughs> exactly, and you came back. And I think even, you know, what's funny is, is we do a lot of work with Palestinians in America, second generation Palestinians who haven't even lived in Palestine, but yeah. kind of got the culture from their parents and are aware of the problems happening back home that they want to give back. And so I think uh, let's definitely schedule another call uh, to talk about Grow Home and uh, super interested uh, to talk with you again. Thank you so much. Good luck. Take care. Bye-bye.